Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at Um, I hope you're glad, glad to be in the house of the Lord. And about four of you are. Okay. Today we're going to be talking about purpose. Everyone say purpose. purpose. Turn to your neighbor and say purpose. purpose. It's a story, a famous story <clears throat> that, that's widely circulated on um, the internet. But during World War II, prisoners in a Nazi consecration, uh, concentration camp in Hungary had the job of processing human sewage in a factory. So the allies bombed the factory and then they destroyed it, leaving the prisoners with nothing to do. So the Nazi soldiers had the prisoners take all the rubble of the factory and move it to a nearby field. The next day, they had them take the same rubble from the field and move it back to the site of the factory. The following day, they returned to it, to the field, and the next day, back again. There was no apparent reason other than to keep busy. No purpose to it, just activity. Soon something strange began to happen. The prisoners began to become destructive. With no meaningful work, in fact, with meaningless work, they began to lose their will to live. Many began to throw themselves at the guards in an effort to get shot, to commit suicide. Others simply gave up and lost their will to live. Because even processing sewage is better than doing something meaningless with no reason or purpose. And this whole story illustrates that you and I were made to make a difference. In the deepest part of your heart, we've been talking about this over the last few weeks, in the insidest of your insides, you know you were made for something more, something significant, and something lasting. I don't think there's anyone in this room that would say that, man, I don't care when it's all said and done, that if I lived or didn't, it didn't matter. I think the fundamental core of our being, which is woven into us by God himself, that we really want to matter. Mattering, mattering, mattering matters. <laughs> you know what I mean? I remember um, uh, someone who uh, was counseling another person, this one particular person, we'll call him, I don't know, we'll call him George. George made $500 million. I've shared this story before. $500 million in a year. He calls up my friend and he starts to weep. And my friend at first thought it was weeping of joy. He goes, so-and-so, I just made $500 million this year. And my friend was taken back. He says, are you going to tithe on that? No, he didn't say that. He didn't say that. He was thinking it, you know. And then this man said, but I have never been more miserable in my life. And, and he's like, oh, man, I, money? Money doesn't do it? The great, great American philosopher, as I've been quoting him the last few weeks, Jim Carrey, said this. I wish all of you had the fame and the money that I have, and you would come to the realization that it makes you miserable. It's funny, I, I, about 10 years ago, I know someone who won the Super Bowl, and this is what he said. That night, he was full of joy. The next morning, this is what he told himself. He goes, man, that's all that that is? He dreamed of playing the Super Bowl for, since he was seven. 
And for years and years and years and years and years, he gave his life to playing the game of football. And football is great, and I love football. But he made it his ultimate purpose. And then after winning the Super Bowl, ex post facto, in the morning, he tells himself, is that all there is in life? You see, you are, you, you are designed by God more than just to make money. And there's nothing wrong with making money. You're more than just being famous and having influence. You're more than just being successful and having achievement and, and looking good. Like there's something deep inside of you that desires significance that money and fame and stuff of this world can never satisfy. There is, and this is where we stand in this world. There are pervasive, subtle, almost subconscious patterns of ideas that we've talked about over the last few weeks in our culture that imply there is no meaning to life. All that is left is addiction to happiness, the instant satisfaction of desire, and a literal plague of deep anxiety as a result has affected tens of millions of Americans. As it turns out, our beliefs are the rails, in the words of one author, on which our lives, including most of our anxiety, run. We almost always live up to or down to our actual beliefs. Our world-level view assumptions or our worldview of the stories that we tell ourselves, the set of things we actually believe about God, reality, meaning, value, what counts as success, what constitutes a good person, and whether we uh, are one or not, tells us a lot about the most important things about our life. We, in other words, need meaning in a world that's telling us there's no such thing as meaning. In the climactic uh, last chapter of Anxiety and Phobia, a workbook by psychologist and author Edmund Bourne, he zeroes in on the importance of meaning to life and spirituality and God, and he's not a Christian and he's not a theist. I believe he's either agnostic or atheist. And he says this startlingly, Lee. For some people, a lack of purpose and meaning in life can provide fertile ground for the development of panic attacks and phobias. A page later, he observes that spirituality refers not just to any particular religion, but to a basic sense of there being a larger purpose to life, as well as a larger power, in his words, a higher power, if you will, that transcends the human order of things. Not only may spirituality provide life with greater meaning, in his words, but it can help overcome anxiety directly because it leads to qualities such as inner peace, serenity, faith, and unconditional love. Now, he's speaking as a non-Christian, and he's speaking as a non-theist, but apart from disagreeing from his uh, pluralistic theology and his atheism, I believe, again, in, in, in harmony with what another author suggests. He is onto something profound. While training oneself to have specific anxiety-defeating thoughts, they are habitually triggered, is a good thing, but a key, thing, a key theme of many people who recover from anxiety is also an understanding of developing a relationship with the true God and deriving meaning and purpose in life from a larger perspective. In fact, when trying to process and make sense of anxiety, it is important not to do so in light of our lives alone in isolation from Jesus. A number of years ago, I think this is where a lot of people are at. Because I think many people have a generalized sense of purpose, maybe a little bit confused about purpose. But a number of years ago, uh, a 17-year-old um, girl named Karen did the unthinkable. She scored a perfect 1,600 on her um, SATs. And out of a possible 8,000 points on the, on the tough University of California accepted, acceptance index, she earned a perfect 8,000. 
She was a straight A student at Mission San Jose High School in Fremont, California. Kind of like me, you know, just, you know. Well, her teachers nicknamed her Wonder Woman because of her unquenchable thirst for knowledge and her uncanny ability to absorb and retain what she read. So when the press interviewed her, they called her the young Einstein. They found her, just, she's typical, right? She's a girl. She loves to talk. She loves food. She just loves to hang out. She loves social media, all of that. And in one interview, she was asked, Karen, what do you think is the meaning of life? Her response was, I have no idea. I would like to know myself. Like Karen, you could be bright. You could be articulate. You could be well-adjusted. You could be successful. And you could have no idea why you're here. You can seem to know everything about everything. And I have a clue what the meaning of the purpose of life is. You can run a 4240 and not know the purpose of life. Right? You can be successful. Everything you do, you're just successful. You still might not know God's purpose for you. So the question that we're gonna ask, answer, talk about, reflect on, on today is why are we here? It's funny, every single year there are 16 billion hits on Google looking for purpose. 25 years ago, you probably heard of this book, Purpose Driven Life, sold 50 million copies. I think our, our culture, our generation is starved for purpose. You know, the Bible makes it very clear that purpose is woven into the biology and the spirituality of our beings. So this sermon series that we've been in, <coughs> excuse me, is all about growing in Jesus. No one wants to get stuck in their life. Can I get an amen to that? So we've been asking a series of questions which help us, to, which function like signposts pointing us forward into the life of God. No one wants to get stuck in sin patterns. No one wants to get stuck in the valley of the shadow of death. No one wants to get stuck in fear. No one wants to get stuck in the emotional scripts that, that we tell ourselves. No one wants to get stuck in pain, said every Dallas Cowboy fan. Amen? We don't want to get stuck. We want to move forward. How many want to move forward? We want to move forward. We want to grow in God. We, don't want to, we, we just don't want to be infantiles or immature people all the days of our life. God has the purpose of growth appointed over you. And so I think it's important that we understand these series of questions that we're talking about, which function to help facilitate growth in our life. Several weeks ago, we talked about how God, and this is so important, this is non-negotiable for life. We must believe that God is good and he's fully competent in running the universe and your life. God is really good. He's more than good. And then last week we talked about, is Jesus really enough for you? Do you believe that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, he ascended into heaven, and he poured out his spirit. Is that story enough for you? Or do you need other stories, additional stories to help you make it through life, to deal with pain, to deal with suffering, to deal with sin, to deal with evil in your life? And today we're going to be talking about how do you have a conviction, a bona fide conviction that God has a purpose for you. A couple days ago, my son Presley, just out of the blue, goes, Dad! I'm a five-year-old. And he, he's very passionate, like his mama. And he just yells, Dad, do you have water? I'm like, yes, son. We have water, right? And then his response is, no, you don't understand me. 
He's getting very articulate. He goes, do you have water for me? Yes. But I think that illustrates where so many people are in the church. We believe is their purpose. Yes. We believe it in the abstract. We believe the preacher has it. We believe those seven girls right here, they have purpose. They obviously have purpose, right? Like right now, we believe Kansas City Chief fans. Yes, they have purpose right now, right? All of us are weeping and crying. Um, so many times we believe, yes, in the abstract that God has purpose. But when it comes down to it, I think you need to be honest. You don't believe that God has purpose for you. And I want to make the case that God has purpose for everything within time and space, within the cosmos, for every single person, even if you don't feel like it or not. God has woven into you big things and meaning and life and purpose. So let me just say this really quick. The Bible makes it very clear that life overflows and radiates with profound purpose and meaning in the big things and even in the small things. Can I get an amen? amen? Revelation chapter four. I want to read this really quick. Verse 11. Can we put that up there really quick? Our media team is amazing. It says this. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive what? Glory and honor and power for you were created or for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. For you created some things, a few things. I love it. For you created all things and by your will they existed and you were created. In other words, life is crammed with purpose. God created all things, even living systems theories will tell you that everything has a purpose. Like within um, ecosystems, if there's one thing that's not functioning, it affects the rest of the design and the telos of that ecosystem or that living system. So everything, as Mark just reminded me before I got it to preach, everything from rodents to cockroaches to wolverines to mountain ranges to people and to personalities and to raider fans, and I can keep on going, to just everything in this world is designed by God and has a purpose except for cats. I don't care if you hate me. If you leave the church, bye-bye. Oh, stop. No, don't leave the church. Psalm 139 says this. In stereoscopic fashion of human life, Psalm 139 provides us with this rich panoramic view of human dignity. And I want to read this in verse 13. Many of you are familiar with this. For you, are, for you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I remember as a young man, I was a redhead. I had big ears. I had teeth all over. I'm really handsome now. But, you know, um, I used to claim this, God, I am more fearfully than wonderfully. Thank you, Lord, okay? <laughs> some of us are more fearfully and some of us are more wonderfully. But whatever, you know? That's not what that passage means, okay? That's a bad joke. But wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Yeah. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in, in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. 
how vast. Everyone would say how vast. How vast is the sum of them? If I could count them, they are more than the sand. Huh? Like, what, what is the metric that you used, babe, last night about sand? Oh. <laughs> come up here. Just do it really quick. We're just, yes, yes. Just, come on. Give it to my wife, Kel. Um, I, well, I heard John Bevere say this, but he said, um, he said, if I think about my wife every day or every minute for every day of my life, like about 100 years, that would equate to about 10 feet, 10 square feet of sand. But God said, all the sand and all the earth. So think about how many thoughts that is. Think about that. Like God, and you said it, God's crazy about you. And he loves us. So all the way down, the psalmist says, to our cellular level in DNA, the Bible declares that you matter. When you believe that, shame cannot get a hold of you. Guilt and regret cannot get a hold of you. And when you believe that you are saved and rescued by Jesus and that Jesus is enough and that you matter, there is no power in hell that can defeat you in the name of Jesus. And so we have to choose today to either believe that we really do matter and life radiates with purpose or nothing matters, assuming that God is non-existent. It's never the case, please hear me today, it's never the case that you just sort of matter. You just sort of matter, right? Because ultimately we're just um, a collocation of atoms, as our culture tells us. Our culture says you kind of sort of matter, like lowercase m, and you sort of have purpose, lowercase p, God doesn't exist, but they simply assume that all of your thoughts that you have and all the atoms and the neural stuff that's going on in your brain as they smash together, they are what form your agency and your thoughts. In fact, you're just one sophisticated machine. Case in point, the reason why you like broccoli, I don't know why you would like broccoli, but let's just go with it. If you like broccoli, uh, it's just simply the accidental processes of your DNA and neural pathways and all the different particles that make you, you. In fact, you are not, con you are not in control. When we do not believe in God, we then believe in causal determinism. And in causal determinism, there is no such thing as meaning and purpose. You're just a bundle of atoms. Can you live that story? Does that story correspond with reality? No, it doesn't. There is purpose woven into the fabric of creation. Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 28 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female. He created them, and all the males and females said amen. amen. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. There is purpose in this world. John chapter 15 says this, Jesus looks to his disciples and said, hey guys, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And then I appointed you so that you would bear fruit. You see, God just doesn't see us in mass. He sees us as individuals as I cough up my lungs, okay? 
He sees us as individuals. He made you from a place of everlasting love. There is purpose woven into your being. However, the American paradox goes like this. We have soaring wealth, and that's kind of like stagnating right now, and obviously inflation is all over the place, but just go with me. We have soaring wealth, but declining states of happiness. People are reporting at, at statistically high levels, historic, historical levels, right now, this year, that they are more unhappy than they have ever been in the longest time. People are unhappy, and part of it is because we believe that there's a strong correlation between fame, prosperity, money, and health with well-being. In fact, the correlation between income and subjective well-being is weak. We have big houses and we have broken homes. We have high incomes and we have low morale. The most important thing in the words of David Myers is that happiness or joy is not based on money, fame, or power. It's based on having a radical sense of purpose. It's purpose, not prosperity, that leads to joy. Older data out there, it's funny, just proving my point. This is the longest intro ever, but just go with me. We only spend 30% of our time every single day in the most important things. In other words, we are chronically not living from our deepest values. What are some of the reasons? Well, number one, we're too busy. We're distracted. We call it hurry sickness. We say this often, but if you go to the grocery store and you're looking for the shortest line, you have a problem. Hmm? Or if you don't like that, when you're driving a car and you stop at an intersection and you look for the line that is the shortest, you have a problem with hurry. Well, some of you are like saying, well, you have seven kids and I have an excuse. No, there's no excuses, right? We, we, we suffer from hurry sickness. We don't even know how not to be busy. We, in the words of my professor, uh, we burn ourselves out on the treadmill of activity. We are busy, we are busy, we are busy, we are doing good things, and yet we don't know in a very clear way the purposes of God for us. Number two, many of us kind of bought into, and this is more subconscious, it's kind of woven into our subconsciousness. We kind of just imbibe this from our cultural moment. We, we, it's called self-sufficiency. Ralph Waldo Emerson said this, we will never quite forgive a giver. What is he saying? I don't need anybody to give me anything. I'm gonna live an independent life. We, in, in, in essence, he said, I don't need any help in self-discovery of who I am. I can figure out and create my own sense of purpose. And yet when we come to scripture, the Bible makes it very clear that we don't create our purpose. It is discovered. God is the one who designs us. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Can I get an amen? Amen. <clears throat> and the last one, there's many different things I got to move on that we could talk about here, but I'm going to call it the quantitative game that we play when it comes to purpose. The reason why we struggle with purpose because we think other people have more purpose than us. So we go on social media and we're like, that guy, that girl has more purpose. They got the boat. They got the hair. They got the clothes, right? They got the, they got a million followers. They wrote that book. That church is doing so awesome and we're kind of sucking. And that's not us. We're not. We are the greatest church in the United States of America, right? <coughs> so we play this quantitative game and we fail to recognize the purposes of God in our own life and the specific ways that God wants us to be us reflecting his love back into the world because we're comparing our, what we have with what other people have. Uh, case in point, this last week, um, 
I went to Starbucks and I'm not allowed by my wife to go to Starbucks, but I, I sneaked it, okay? My wife is, is totaling the health and she's keeping me alive, but sometimes you have to have some joy. Seeds aren't going to do it for you. I'm kidding. Seeds and hummus and celery. Oh, okay. <laughs> so you need some joy every now. So I took my kids, went to Starbucks, got them a plain bagel with cream cheese. Yes, there's poison in it, but let's just, come on, right? We had some joy with that poison. Um, I'm kidding, no, Starbucks is great. <clears throat> but, uh, so I got a plain bagel and cream cheese for King and Pressler, my two five-year-old boys. So I, I did, it was a great dad moment. It's an art with my kids. So you gotta get the bagel and you gotta spread the cream cheese proportionately. It just has to be perfect. So I did it perfectly. I was so proud of myself. I'm like, I'm just killing it as a dad, you know? And so I gave this bagel to my son, Presley. And then I got another bagel. And you, in twins, they need, they need to have everything twinned. It has to be perfect. And so I know this. So I got the right size bagel and I perfectly just laid the cream cheese on. And I'm telling myself, wow, I'm just, I'm just, I'm a great dad, okay? Gave it to my son, King, and this is what he did. He looked at it. My other son, Presley's eating his bagel, and he looked at his, kept on looking at his, and then he started complaining and wanting, Dad, you gave him more. And I'm like, son, I promise you, it's exactly the same. I was having the greatest dad moment, and you ruined it, okay? <laughs> We're gonna go home, and you're gonna go to your room, okay? And you're gonna think about how you ruined my day. But this is what we do. We take our, what we have, what God has given us. We, we don't believe it's enough. We, we think it's scarce. Like some of us, I don't run a 4240, I'm not great. Or I don't have this mind, I must not be, whatever. And, and we, we fail to recognize the set of gifts and talents that God has made us, uniquely us. And, we, and, and when we forget that and we start to compare ourselves with other people, two things will happen. It will lead to a deflated sense of ego. You will live a chronic life of insecurity and inadequacy because you will be comparing your gifts and stuff with someone else's. Or it will lead to an inflated sense of ego because you'll, you'll, you, you know how to curate your social media platform and you'll, you'll follow people that you think are less than you. And so you'll walk around with pride failing to recognize that God has made you in a specific way. And this is why Paul says, it is unwise, people. I'm screaming at you because you need to hear this. It is unwise to go to social media. I'm kidding. He didn't say that, right? He says, it is unwise to compare yourself with that homeboy, with Gary with the boat, or with that church with all those people, or with that intercessor, or with that person who has that, that skin line, the clothesline, it is un blah, 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 right? It is unwise for you to compare yourself because God has not made you Gary. God has not made you Mark. God has not made you Chris. God has made you, you, and he has a purpose for you. So what is our purpose? 
Generally speaking, you are made in the image of God. Genesis chapter one, verse 26, we read that. You are made in the words of my, my professor. You are made to partner with God in building communities of beauty and justice and love and freedom and joy and truth. This is the cultural mandate. We are called to construct communities that display the radical freedom and goodness and joy and love and justice and righteousness and peace that only God can give us. Genesis 1 shows us what purpose is all about. God, <coughs> as the eternal, loving, self-giving, other-centered God who creates human to be his partners, not slaves or servants, but partners. Can I get an amen to that? And he then works together with them in close relationship all the time. That is where we find our purpose. We are like vice regents. We are royal. As one author said, forget about happiness. You have been given a throne. God created humans to rule in wisdom and love and to reflect the goodness of God and to partner with God himself in bringing shalom and peace and goodness to creation. That is our purpose. That is our purpose. But we find in, in many ways that we have failed to live up to that. In Jesus, God restores our purpose of partnering with him. So our fundamental purpose as followers of Jesus is we are to become like Jesus in our character and our behavior. Living, please hear me, and I'm, I'm stealing this from Dallas Willard, Mixing it up a little bit to sound like it's from me. But living as if Jesus is living through you every single day. This is ethical, not ontological. We're not saying you're Jesus. We're saying living as if Jesus is living through you. Think about how, that, how transformative that is. If we really bought into that concept and that perspective of following Jesus. Jesus, you're living through me today. So we are called to live for the purposes of the Father. And here's the thing, you please, please hear me, because God has woven into the fabric of our being purpose and design and meaning, it is impossible for you not to live on purpose. It's impossible. Every single day you live on purpose. The question is, are you living for the purposes of God? Or are you living from a shadow purpose? a darker purpose. One pastor said, my purpose is to evangelize and to proclaim the good news of Jesus. He goes, I, I just know there's a grace to do it. I just knew as, as a young man, there was something in my bones. I just had to proclaim the gospel to people. But I also know my darker purpose. My darker purpose is to go home, sit on a, a couch and just watch TV and pray that the world goes to hell. Everyone in this room has a purpose from God. And everyone in this room has a shadow purpose, a darker purpose that leads us away from the good purposes of God. But within the dynamic of our relationship with Jesus and living as if Jesus is living through us as a way of understanding our purpose, there are characteristic purposes of God for everyone in this room. I'm going to take a water break, okay? Turn to your neighbor and say, this is actually really good. You could pretend like you can say, you could fake it. Okay. <laughs> but there are characteristic purposes of God for everyone in this room. There are unique sets of purposes that you have, please hear me, that no one else in this room can fulfill. 
there are some things I can never do in this church that only you can do. Guys, 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 you do not want me up here singing and leading us into the presence of God. We will be a church of nine. You know, my family, get it, uh, right? Right, some of you, God's not called you to preach. That's all right. Some of you, God's called you to pray because he's given you an intercessory gift. Some of you have an incredible capacity to make money. Some of you have just an ability to be successful. Lord, those are things that God has given you. So here's the thing that we have to answer. The question, and the question, and we say this often, God will always come to us and ask us, were you faithful to what I gave you and made you to be? God will never come to you on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. God will never come to you at the end of your life and say, were you, were you faithful like Moses? Were you faithful like Elijah? Did you kill it like Mark Thornton? Were you amazing like Kelly Wilde? Were you incredible like Pastors Ken and Connie? Did, did you do what I asked them to do? God will never evaluate your life based on so-and-so. He will always evaluate you based on what he's given you and your purpose. For example, we find in John chapter 17, verse 4, Jesus said, I glorified you on earth, talking to his father, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, in the words of Jesus. Okay, so the question is, when did Jesus, when did Jesus say this or why did Jesus say this? Did he heal everyone? He healed everyone that came to him, but I'm sure there were a lot of people that weren't healed that didn't come to Jesus. Did he preach the gospel to everyone? He preached the gospel to everyone that came to him, but did he preach the gospel to everyone? We know this, the answer, no. Jesus even said to his disciples, greater works will you do as I go to the Father and then I give you the Holy Spirit. So in the words of, of my professor, Jesus knew he finished his race, but not everything was done. Not everything was done. How could then Jesus say that he fulfilled the assignment of his father that his father gave him to do? The only way that he could say that is because Jesus knew fundamentally that there were certain tasks and signposts. Yes, he is utterly unique. He is the son of God. We are not Jesus. But Jesus knew the mission that his father had for him and only Jesus in a unique way could do it for the world. In the same way, the same thing is true for you and I. There are unique tasks for us that Jesus wants to work through us that only you and I can do. You and I cannot do everything, but you can do the something that God has uniquely purposed your life to do. I hear this often in the church world. I, I hear it in corporate world as well. And I think it's nonsensical and stupid. Okay, so I'm going to say it really quick. You're replaceable. I think that comes from the pit of hell. I, I, I think that's, that's the devil. No, no, no. Yeah, of course, if you move to a different church or if you move from a different position, yes, we're going to experience a void. But ultimately, you are not replaceable. From your chromosomal makeup, from your DNA, to your personality, to your gifts, to the resources that you have, to your, personal, your personality makeup and how you think about different things. Some of you are way more merciful than other people. Some of you are just 
<coughs> you're a narcissist, let's move, I'm kidding. <coughs> no, we all have a wide, a wide um, continuum of personality traits that God wants to bless and to bless the world through. In other words, you are not a replaceable person. God has you here breathing oxygen. He has brought you into the kingdom for such a time as this. There is a reason you are in Boise, Idaho. Some of you might like, why am I in Boise? Because it's God's country, okay? Why am I in Boise? Well, because God has you here for a reason. Why am I going through this storm? Well, God has a reason for it. Why am I experiencing this difficulty? God has a reason. There is not a, a, a situation or a circumstance where there is not a reason or a purpose that God has for you and the season that you're in in your life. Remember. Remember, this world is crammed with purpose. This is why I like Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul is, what, please hear what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying something like a generalized way of God wanting us to live when he says you are a workmanship. Workmanship in the Greek, has a semantic range to it. It can, it can refer to sympathy, symphony. It can refer to poems. It can refer to stanzas. It, it really is a loaded term that implies purpose and meaning and specificity. Everyone say specificity. Specificity. Okay. I love that. First service. You did better than first service. There is a specific particular plan, in other words, for your life. So when Paul says you are a workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works because of his grace, not because of your performance, he is saying that God wants us to live out in the characteristic way that God has made us. And he wants us to work through the characteristic aspects of love that make us uniquely us. So there are ways that I love people, that my wife loves people in different ways. I love my wife. She loves through her heart. She loves through her spirit. God speaks to her. I feel like she has access to the throne room. And she is, unfortunately for me as her husband, she is 99.9% .9 right, okay? <laughs> I, I, I have a tendency to love people through my mind and, and through concepts and through different things. And certainly God can, can um, um, get through that, but we all have different ways and different expressions of loving people. You are, you are, you are not replaceable. This is why we have the body of Christ. This is why Paul says, that if you belong to Christ, you, are, you have been baptized into the body and you've been made to drink of the Spirit. You see, the body is not just a head. The body is not just fingers. The body is not just a tripod. The body is a complete organism. And when the body functions as the body, then the body truly becomes what the body designed by God is called to be. Hmm. So you have a very specific purpose for your life. Number two, when we develop a conviction that we have a purpose, a very specific purpose, we then can embrace the providential or sovereign opportunities facing us every single day. <coughs> Esther chapter four. Many of you are familiar with this passage. Mordecai comes to Esther. Haman has a plot to kill the Jews. Esther is Jewish. Mordecai comes to her. She is the queen. And he says, perhaps. I wish Mordecai would have said, surely. 
just says perhaps. Or you know, come on Mordecai, give some more encouragement here, right? But he says perhaps, I love this phrase, perhaps you've been brought into the kingdom of God for such a time as this. You see, you've been brought into the kingdom of God for such a time as this. Esther became convinced of that. And she seized the opportunity. She, she stepped into that strategic moment and as an act of non-referential sacrificial intercession on behalf of her people, God saved the nation. And what's interesting about Esther, I love this, she wasn't named queen until she gave her life away on behalf of her people. You see, authority is given to those people who sacrifice everything for the kingdom of God. There's authority when you begin to believe your purpose and you begin to live in a sacrificial way on behalf of the kingdom of God for other people. I remember a couple months ago, I was tired. Mondays is daddy, daddy date with my toddlers. So I took my daycare to Chick-fil-A. <coughs> it's funny, people look at you weird when you have four kids and they ask you, are these all your kids? Well, I'm, not, I'm not the grandpa, you know? <laughs> I've gotten that before. Um, I, go, I go to Chick-fil-A with, with my toddlers and they're having a great time. My two sets of twins, they're throwing ketchup at each other. They got ketchup all over their face. They're now in the little play area. One of my kids, I saw them throwing a shoe at another kid. I'm like, oh no, 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 no. You know, and I have great kids. They're almost perfect. No, they're not. Um, <coughs> a father comes up to me. He starts talking. He has one child. And that one child is perfect, just sitting there. And I got my four kids and they're just all over the place. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm tired that day, just preached the day before. And you know, I'm, I'm a man of God. And if you don't know this, I'm pretty holy. And you know, I'm just, you know, having a conversation with this guy and I'm being polite. And he was really interested in, like in my story. And, and <laughs> why do you have all these kids? And I'm like, I don't know. And, <clears throat> and, uh, the whole time, I just know this is a moment, this is an opportunity, guys, to talk to him, talk, talk about his life, talk about Jesus, whatever. And I kept on thinking, I kept on like, and I know my spirit, I was like, oh, let's do it, let's do it. But I was so tired. And I'm, I'm gonna be real honest, I failed. I gave into my tiredness. Ex post facto, I'm, I'm out of, of Chick-fil-A trying to get my kids into the car. And then I'm, I'm just wrestling with this. And the Holy Spirit came to me and said, son, that was a moment. That was a moment. I provided that opportunity for you so that you could speak into that father's life. Guys, his heart was open and my heart broke and I prayed for him. And I told myself from that moment on in my failure, I never wanna be nonchalant or casual with these, these opportunities. When we have a conviction that we have a purpose from God, when we really do, we will step into even the awkward moments and serve people and love people and share Jesus with people. Take advantage of those opportunities that God give us, gives us every single day. You see the opportunities that God give us, we usually assume they're cosmological flukes. It's just an accident that I'm having a conversation with this person, is it? We believe that life is crammed with purpose and meaning. And when we believe that we have, and we have a conviction that we have a purpose from God, it gives us the power to step into these moments. Well, a couple weeks ago, and. It was by the grace of God. I'm, I'm going to the store. I'm at Albertsons. I'm really tired again. 
I'm looking for something to find this one thing I'm looking for and I'm rushing out. As I'm rushing out, I hear this single mom with her daughter say this, well, I, I, can't, I can't buy this little five, five buck toy uh, until I make um, money in two weeks. I go by and I just, it just hit me, right? I just, I just felt just, okay, God, you want, me to, you want me to say something or do something? So I, I go and check out of the automated place and I'm checking out and she comes and I see her coupons. She's like two places down from me and she's getting her food with her little, with little daughter. And um, I just felt the impression of the Holy Spirit um, to take, to step into this opportunity and to bless her. So what I did, because I'm holy and um, I circled, I bought my stuff and I circled and I circled and I circled. Finally, I got the courage. I'm so stupid. Got a stick of gum, not a stick of gum, but a pack of gum. And I bought it. I'm like, what in the world? And finally, I just said, okay, I'm going to do it. So she's still there buying her food. And I said, ma'am, I just, I don't want to be awkward, but I just, I wanted to bless you because um, I'm a holy man of God. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> God speaks to me, you know. I didn't even tell her who I was, but I said, I just want to bless you. So I want to buy your food. She instantly broke down. And I said, okay, I just want you to know this one thing. You might not know this, but Jesus loves you more than you could ever imagine. And I never want you to forget this. I want you to connect the buying of this food with the fact that the God of the universe loves you. And she just broke down in tears. I learned from my failure. In fact, I fell a lot, but I wanna take these opportunities and I want to step into them more. And as your pastor, I'm going to do it more and more and more. I might fail sometimes, but I'm going to be bold and I want you to be bold. And we're going to believe that God has great purposes to be worked through us for the sake of people. Can I get an amen to that? <laughs> finally, really quick, finally, um, we're called to steward the gifts and resources that we, we have been given by God towards the kingdom of God. Guys, you have been gifted. We have gifts. God's calling or his purpose on us is to serve with Jesus and for him for the blessing of the world so that it will become more like how God designed it to be. How do we do that? How do we fulfill our purposes? Like it's, it's many people get really confused. It's like, does that mean I gotta go preach? I mean, I had to get on stage and sing worship songs. What does that mean? Well, I fundamentally believe it's when through partnership with the Holy Spirit and through my point here in two minutes that I'm gonna make it, we're gonna be done through prayer and discovering the purposes of God that we connect our work and our talents with the purposes of God. It's your work that you begin to fulfill your purposes by blessing the world. I wanna read this from Dorothy Sayers really quick. And nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect work. The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. I think that's all good, but, but a point's not that. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. No crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawer, drawers, drawers ever, I dare swear, came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth. Nor, if they did, could anyone believe that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth. No piety in, in the worker will compensate for work that is 
that is not true to itself or any work that is untrue to its own technique is a living lie. Let the church remember this, that every maker and worker is called to serve God in his profession or trade, not outside of it, inside of it, not outside of it. Many of us think that, well, for me to serve God, I gotta go to a monastery or I gotta go on a pilgrimage or I need to be a part of uh, professional Christian groups, whatever. No, some of you God's called you to make money. Some of you God's called you to be an entrepreneur. Some of you God's called you to teach. Some of you God's called you to clean. Some of you God's given you a mercy gift, whatever it is. Work inside those commitments. And as you work inside those commitments in the good days and in the bad days, you will begin to discover the purposes of God. And everyone said amen. Okay, that was my long intro. Now here's my point. I just want to make one simple point here. Our reading text was John 5. And I want to read this. <coughs> it says in John chapter 5, I believe in verse 19. If you guys can get, put that up for me really quick, John 5. Can we give it up for our media team? They're amazing. I got to read this to you guys. So if you can give me a Bible, our media team, I, it's my fault. I, I messed them up. If you could turn it to John chapter, there you go, five. You guys good? You'll see if I'm a pastor or not, if I can turn there right away. Hey. And I can't even read this. Okay, here we go. Old man, coming out. I am Gen Millennial. Here we go. John 5, 19 says, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will be shown him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives life um, to all, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Jesus, do you believe He's utterly unique? The embodiment of Israel's God? The Logos that we find in John chapter 1? Jesus is the creator of all things and the Savior of the world. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus says this, I can do nothing apart from my Father. What? Jesus is saying, I'm helpless. I'm in trouble. I'm incompetent. Jesus, fully God, fully man, says, I can do nothing apart from what I see the Father doing. Jesus, the one who possesses all these incommunicable attributes we find in Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus gave up the independent use and right and privilege of using the divine lifestyle omnipotence and omniscience and all the wisdom that, that makes God, God. He gives up that independent use of that and he shows us a way forward, a model for us in discovering the purpose and the mission of God. Jesus utterly relies on his Father for everything, for purpose, for power, for authority, for wisdom, for grace. Jesus utterly dependent upon the Father, like a child utterly dependent upon their Father for food every single day. 
This is why I think Jesus makes it very clear that if you wanna enter the kingdom of God, you have to become like a child. You, you have to learn a healthy helplessness. You have to learn that, as Eugene Peterson said, that everyone is in trouble and the people that are in the most trouble are the ones who don't realize that they are in trouble. C.S. Lewis says, life is lived on a precipice. And when we forget that we are in trouble, when we forget that we need God's strength, when we forget that we can't do anything apart from Jesus, what happens? We remove ourselves from a life of prayer. How do we discover our purposes? Within the matrices of our gifts, our talents, our work, when it comes to seizing the opportunities that God has given us, it is absolutely non-negotiable that we hear the voice of God on a consistent basis. You cannot, I, I, I say this all the time, but we should be shocked in the church if God should not speak to his people. God, and I declare this over us, is not a non-communicative, silly deity that just gives us nice, warm fuzzies. God communicated and spoke the worlds into existence. God speaks, and he knows how to speak to you. And there are seasons that we're in that sometimes God needs to drag us out of through his word. And then there's sometimes we're in seasons that, that God comes gently and draws us out. You see, God knows how to communicate to you. He knows what, how you learn. And so God in his still small voice is speaking all the time. The question is, are you in tune with him? So how do you tune your life? This is our practice this week. Can I drink some more water before I hack up alone? Our practice this week is really simple take, and I get this from one pastor, and I think he's doing a great job, but I think you need to take 10 to 20 minutes, take it, set it aside for undistracted time of solitude. Do you know you touch your phone over 2,600 times a day? Touch, touch, touch. In fact, our phones are, we should just like stick them to our bodies, right? Somebody like, that's the mark of the beast, Chris. Yeah, sure, whatever. Okay, we shouldn't do that. We, we're so... We're, we're so, we're firehosed in the words of Tyler Staten, firehosed with information. Neil Postman said this in the 80s, he's a cultural critic. He says, there's an inverted relationship between information and action. The more information you have, the less action you can do. There's information, 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 and we just can't, we can't do anything with it. And we've got noise and distraction in our head. What we need to do this week, what if we did this? We took as a community 10 to 20 minutes, set it aside, for undistracted time of solitude. Remove your phone. And I do this, my mom does this every morning. She wakes up in the morning and she says, and Shane does this as well, good morning, Holy Spirit. No distractions, maybe not even turning any music on. Just go in a quiet place. Some of you are starting to jerk. You're like, <laughs> like it's like you're addicted to your phones and you're addicted to noise, I get it but let's just remove all the distractions and for just 10, 20 minutes, just say, good morning, Holy Spirit. And inevitably what will happen, you're, all the clutter in your mind will come to the surface. You'll start to think about emails that you didn't, like, you didn't send out. You'll you start thinking about all these tasks that you need to do. You gotta do this. Oh, you forgot to text that person back. Or you, you know, there's a big project. You start to worry about that. That inevitably happens. What you do when that happens is you say, Holy Spirit, come again. Maybe open your eyes, 
Take a deep breath and say, Holy Spirit, come again. Here's the thing, most Christians take two minutes in undistracted silence and the clutter comes and they give up on prayer. I want you to push through the distraction. I just want you to wait, push through the distraction, say, come Holy Spirit, and just listen to what God will say. I think you'll be shocked that God actually wants to speak to you. And at the end, when you're done, get this from another pastor, this is not original to me, but I think this is a very good question you can ask yourself, and it's this, or it's actually a statement. Jesus, I think you are saying this to me. I think it's so important in prayer that we bring our requests and our supplications to God. Can I get an amen? God wants to hear everything in your heart, yes. But sometimes we need to be silent so we can hear God. Like I, I remember um, day one when I, wanted, when I went on a date with my, actually it was day two, our first date was awful. We'll talk about that later, okay? Our second day, a date was amazing. There was a chemistry. There was a back and forth conversation between us. It was dynamic. I just, I just knew in that moment that my wife was the one. We, we could talk. We weren't over talking. We were back and forth. There was a fresh dynamic conversation in that second date. And I think many times if we're not careful in our relationship with Jesus, we're just doing all the talking. And you need to talk. And you need to make your request. But sometimes you just need to shh and listen. That's relationship. Because God wants to speak to you. He's not a nebulous force that just gives you nice warm fuzzies. He's a communicator that wants to show you your purpose and wants to show you what he has in store for you. We can't move into the purposes of God if we don't set some time aside every single day for undistracted time with the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen. amen. Could you give God a hand this morning? <laughs> Bow your heads, close your eyes. If you wanna make a commitment this week to an undistracted time with the Holy Spirit, just give me just a few minutes if you can. If you want God to give you a, to move you into a, a, a deeper sense of purpose, you want to hear the voice of God and you want to set that time to hear God's voice, can you just raise your hand for me? Okay, thank you. Yeah, do this for me. Raise both hands. I like the, the people that are raising both hands. That's, I like that. All right. Lord, you see every hand raised. Holy Spirit, be with them this week. Holy Spirit, answer them this week. Holy Spirit, speak to them. Lead them, guide them. Your word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. I thank you the voice of God would become clear. The voice of God, Psalm 29, is powerful. You sit unthroned over the flood and the chaos and you give strength to your people. So every hand that's raised, give strength, give wisdom, give them your voice. Lead them in the paths of righteousness for your namesake. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. And everyone said, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.